We are Marquette. 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 We are What Kuf Noela do, Chris Nyon gets, Aquahoni Wagita Loda, Okale, Oniata Aga, the Wagadhon Choda. So I said in the Oneida language, I extend my greetings, love, and thankfulness to everyone. I am Chris Cornelius of the Wolf Clan, and People of the Standing Stone is the earth that I come from. I am an associate professor of architecture at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and founding principal of Studio Indigenous, also a citizen of the United Nation of Wisconsin. Midakoyepi, chante washtea nape chuzapie, damakota ihangtua himacha. Hi, my relatives. My name is Samantha Major. I'm an assistant professor at Marquette University in English. My name is Ruthie Dibble, and I'm the curator of the Chipstone Foundation here in Milwaukee. And we're dedicated to the study and curation of American decorative arts and material culture. Before we start, we wanted to acknowledge that this conversation takes place on the occupied lands of Native people who inhabited this region. The Ho-Chunk Nation and Menominee Nation are the original First Peoples of Wisconsin, but today Wisconsin is home to 12 First Nation communities, including the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, Potawatomi Nation, Ojibwe Nation communities, Stockbridge Muncie Band of the Mohican Nation, and the Brothertown Indian Nation. In distinctive ways, each have historical and spiritual connections to the land that our institution, or this institution, now resides upon. So we acknowledge and pay respect to the indigenous peoples of Wisconsin, past, present, and future. This is a question for both of you that I thought I'd start out with. I wanted to first ask if you could share with our listeners your origin stories and the decisive moment in your life when you decided that what you wanted to do with your lives and your careers. I was born in North Dakota, and I'm descendant of Native and non-Native parents. And on both sides, there's quite a tradition of storytelling. And so at a young age, that was a big part of my life. I've always loved storytelling and was drawn to it in different ways. And very early on, I began writing as well. So it was sort of natural that I would major in English and pursue literature broadly. I really didn't have the opportunity to study Native literature in depth until my graduate work. So my goal is to bring Native literature to the forefront in literature departments in the English department here at Marquette. I decided to be an architect, I think, about eighth grade, ninth grade. My father was a brick mason. His brothers worked in construction. I was always kind of around building, and so that was part of you know, growing up, but I really sort of gravitated towards architect being the person designing the things. Like that was something that was really interesting to me. So that was the kind of trajectory I went through high school and then undergrad. And it wasn't until after undergrad that I really started to think about how I was going to use this discipline in my culture and how was I going to kind of marry those two things. And then I, when I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia is when I really decided how I was going to kind of do that going forward and that really kind of established a foundation for the way that I think about architecture for indigenous people now. Just a follow-up question, is there anything that you experienced at UVA or a class you took or a professor or a conversation that prompted you to take your career in the direction you have? I selected UVA out of other choices, other Ivy League schools I got into, primarily because I knew that I wanted to do a thesis project, a thesis design thesis project. And so the essay I wrote to get into graduate school is basically my thesis statement. That was, how do I translate the culture into architecture? 
And so what I found at UVA was I did not have indigenous professors. I didn't have any indigenous experts. What I had were fantastic professors that taught me how to think about architecture. And so I could use that as the lens through which to examine the culture. And they were really receptive to that as a project. They saw the importance in it. And that really like was transforming for me. That experience of being in that environment and working in that way was really sort of changing for me. So I had two professors that had a profound impact on me. One was Peter Waldman. He kind of taught me how to really think about architecture in a larger sense. He's really kind of fascinated with the moon. Like he designed a house for a nomad, a lunatic, and a surveyor. He helped me really kind of understand that what my culture was as a mythology is has applicability to the built environment. And then the other professor that I have is W.G. Clark, who is really just about buildings, but he really makes beautifully poetic work. And it's not super conceptual in a way. It's really just about architecture. And those two people together, like, really helped me. They were like both sides of my brain, right? They really kind of helped me formulate what I was going to do with architecture and how I was going to do it for indigenous people. In my experience of your practice, you are an architect and you're an artist at the same time. And I'm wondering for you, how do you see those identities relating or conflicting and why are they both necessary to your work? I guess for me, I don't really see the separation in the disciplines. For me, what is regarded as art by the art world, curators, museums, fellowships are things that are in the production of architecture for me. Like the products, because I think that one, I'm trying to, and it's not, I'm not exclusive in this, but trying to expand what we think are the products of architecture. It's not just a building, right? Everything doesn't lead to a building per se. And architecture is much broader than that for me. So I've always thought about how do I make creative things? And whether they get regarded as art or architecture is not necessarily important to me. I will say, however, the installation work that I do, I think, is exclusively architectural and different than a standard art installation. I'm trying to create things that have material agenda. They have a tectonic agenda. They have a site agenda. All of the things kind of traditional architectural project would also have. They're not just sculptural pieces, right, to kind of be admired. They're trying to do things that are, I think, uniquely architectural, especially in the material and spatial realm. To be honest, for a while, like one of the first things I got out of graduate school was the artist in residence for the National Museum of the American Indian. At that time, when I obviously the first architect to get that, and at that time, I really had a difficult time like calling myself an artist because I respect that discipline being different than my discipline. And so I still, I think, struggle with it a little bit because I wasn't trained as an artist. I'm trained as an architect. But I guess, I mean, I'm starting to own it <laughs> in a way. Like I win this huge artist fellowship, so I should... <laughs> start to to do that but I really for me it's it's kind of one and the same yeah yeah, no, I, I think that's really interesting to frame your installations in that way. I appreciate that. So this is another question I had for you guys. It's longer, so bear with me here. So Sam, your dissertation investigates Native writers' work centering the non-human presence in indigenous ways of knowing and writing. And Chris, two of your works that were up at the Haggerty, the trickster and It's Not a Teepee, that they have an immense, I would say, non-human presence. And let me just describe them briefly from your experiences 
You walk into this looming space and there is this, this is, it's not a teepee. There's this kind of figure standing before you that's reaching up to the rafters of the building. And it's standing on, I think, three large branches that it's constructed out of. And those branches are intersecting and they're wrapped in materials. And then if you start looking at the ends of the branches, you'll see small kind of interesting textures and colors and materials. And these are something that, Chris, you've described as regalia. A word that comes to to mind that's not enough, but that comes to mind is anthropomorphic, the idea that these have presence and they feel like they have a subjectivity. And so I'm wondering, Sam, if you would mind elucidating the meaning of non-human, which you do so beautifully in your work. And Chris, if you could talk a little bit about how that resonates with you and how what's your process of creating presence in your work through materials design concept? So the non-human, I mean, we can think of it very broadly and very simply as anything that's not human. It's this sort of great umbrella term, but sort of in the academic realm, in philosophy, there's been this turn toward the material, away from sort of theories about language, toward new materialisms, all these other sort of complicated terms, object-oriented ontologies, animal studies, all of these things. And so what I find interesting and perhaps connect with Chris's work in this way is that for indigenous scholars were looking at this turn in philosophy. It's very interesting because it seems like Western philosophy is catching up to what indigenous peoples have known and have worked into their own sort of scientific and philosophical positioning for a long, long time, which is the idea that what if the human is not at the center? What if we move the human, you know, sort of to the edges of the circle with everything else? Then then we get sort of this attention toward the non-human. Then we get ideas like, for instance, what happens if we give a river essentially what we consider human rights. How might that change the way we are in relationship to our rivers or natural landscapes? So there's all this going on in different fields. But, you know, that's sort of the definition of non-human as it's working as this sort of umbrella term right now. Yeah, I was really struck by Sam's writing about indigenous ontology and using that as a term because I feel like it kind of encapsulates what I'm trying to do. I have never separated intellectual thought with native thought. Never. It started with graduate school. Like I started to really read all of these issues and I said, well, these are these are native issues, right? These these are what you're talking about. These concepts are native concepts. So I think that's a great way of putting it because in this in this like human, non-human world in in indigenous culture, we are related as if they were my cousins, my sisters, my brothers, that kind of relation. Right. And I believe that we are related to buildings. And we would think about buildings and architecture differently if we always thought about that when we designed them, right? So when the Indian Community School of Milwaukee and Franklin is like the biggest project that I've worked on, I think it's the biggest thing that kind of exemplifies indigenous architecture for me. And so when I was collaborating with the primary designer, Antoine Predock, who's non-native, we had always thought about that building as an animal. We had always thought about inhabiting the site like an animal, existing like an animal, and how do we connect those ideas or identities with it? And so I feel like I'm related to it even though I have created it, right? And so that's a big project. So that's like the bigger spectrum. The installation work is really fast for me. It allows me to get these ideas out very quickly. 
And so when I'm making the stuff, when I explain how I make the stuff, it's hard for me to articulate it because it might sound a little weird. Meaning the trickster that was at the Haggerty is made out of trees that were harvested from the Linden Sculpture Garden. They brought them to the museum for me. And when I walked into the museum the first day, there's like five trees on the floor. So when I see that, it's going to tell me what it wants to be. I don't come in with the architect, with the drawings, the plans, like, okay, this is what I'm going to do, that kind of thing. It speaks to me. So the way that the trees go up and how I lift them off the ground is in a manner that they tell me how they want to sit. When I put the copper mesh on it, it tells me how it wants to be. I always use this analogy and it's really probably more than an analogy to me. Like I'm making a a shirt for a bear and it's a huge thing that I have to negotiate. So how I seam it, how I put it together, what I'm wrapping it around are all important to me. I made the fabric somewhere else. Like I've sort of worked that copper to look in a particular manner but how it actually ends up and how it weathers is really kind of up to the the actual thing once it's into the world. So I think that what I'm calling a dialogue between me and the thing and the material is actually part of this ontological thought process, right? I am putting something into it and it is giving me something back. And so this is why I use the trickster is because the trickster is also working on me. Just as the trickster would, I believe, work on the storyteller who is telling the stories about the trickster. Because the trickster is completely fabricated by humans, but it's usually an animal or it might be some other phenomena. But in the stories, the animal doesn't lose its animalness. Meaning like a rabbit does the things a rabbit would do. A coyote does the things a coyote would do. And so for me, the architectural piece does what a piece of architecture would do. At the same time, it does more. It allows me to speak through the thing. It allows me, when I write about it, when I speak about it, it becomes a character now that exists in the world that I can use to teach in a way that I wouldn't normally be able to do with, let's say, a drawing or a model. Those are things that don't speak in the same way. So it speaks differently. And I would hope in that it sounds like presence of the thing is something. And that was important to me, like in that particular space that we didn't, you know, I cut some branches off the trees, but for the most part, they stayed whatever length they were in the world before that. So that's really kind of how I think about the trickster. You know, actually, just a follow-up question about the trickster. I was listening to you talk about it on the internet, and you talked about how important it is to you that visitors to that object and that space, that installation, could have any range of subjective interpretations of it. And you said that you are really interested in the idea of ambiguity and that ambiguity has particular resonance in indigenous culture. And I wondered if you could illuminate that a bit. I think the ambiguity is really an intellectual space to fill. It's like when Rosalind Krauss writes about the index and she talks about painting as the shifter, right? The shift, the trickster is the shifter. That to me, that's where that's that ambiguous space. That's kind of what I'm talking about. And so these are also things that I think indigenous people have always had and existed, but never labeled or called them things. Architecture is one of those things, right? Like architecture and building was always part of our existence, but we never said, well, now's the time for architecture, right? Like that's not what we called it. So that's a part of the history that I'm trying to tap into as well. That was part of how people saw the world. And to me, ultimately, architecture is how we reconcile ourselves with the land. 
to me, that's that existence. So that ambiguity offers people to insert their own interpretations. It's not a thing that stands for something specific for me. And that's why I like really like the trickster as a figure, because I see the sort of intellectual guidance in that. Now, I will say, too, that Native writers have had a profound effect on me. Like, Gerald Visner, as a writer, writes about the trickster. Like, I can't even begin to tap into the way that he was thinking about it, right? That had a profound effect on me. Louise Erdrich, a lot of Native writers Native, what people would call native creative writers had a really profound effect on me because they were articulating things about the culture because they had to in that medium in ways that I don't as a creative thing in a drawing or a model, but I might in the way that I speak about the thing. That's really lovely. And I had a question, and I think it's going to be a little repetitive, but I did want to ask you both about your influences more broadly than even like your own discipline. What are, what are the influences, intellectual, creative, personal, that have really informed your work? My influences, as I said sort of before, I was influenced at a young age by relatives who are very lively storytellers, a lot of storytelling in my family life, and that, of course, turns into writing and a love of literature. But I would say my heroes really in this life are those working in native language revitalization. So shout out to my Dakota language teachers. I'm a second language learner, and they're really the heroes for me because I think embedded in our languages, that's really where we find a lot of the philosophy, sciences, so much information there in the grammar of the language. And so then, of course, I mean, native writers and storytellers, I I look to scholars who are, are, they're both scholars and creative writers, folks like Hyde Erdrich and Louise Erdrich, of course, Susan Power, these fabulous contemporary native writers who are doing extraordinary work, not just in storytelling and poetry, but then also in our community. I think, you know, for me, the influences on the work, there's both indigenous influences and non-indigenous influences on the work. But, you know, I'm really influenced by contemporary Native artists because I think that that's a thing, too, that, like, I forget who said it, but our indigenous art isn't always about being indigenous. It's, it's about how you sort of make it a contemporary thing. So people that are doing that are the ones that kind of influenced me. So the late Rick Bartow and Truman Lowe were both contemporary artists that had really significant careers in that um, regard. And then other people like A Tribe Called Red, who are taking, who are indigenous artists that are EDM musicians that take traditional singing and drumming and put it into the music and make it something else. That's really fascinating to me. And the the artist Jeffrey Gibson is also an influence. People that are putting this work into these other art institutions is really kind of the work that's influencing me. And then, you know, for me, there's this other part it's not so other to me, but as an architect, I'm really influenced by other modernist architects like Le Corbusier, Carlos Scarpa. Those are like my favorite architects because ultimately I'm making architecture and, you know, that is part of how I kind of see the world. And so I sort of gravitate towards that work as well. Where do you see your work in 100 years? So what's the impact you hope your work will have on artists, architects, environment, audiences of all kinds, students too? legacy is always left up to someone else. But I think one hopes to be remembered as, you know, in the Dakota way, you think of being a good relative. But a big part of my job is thinking of myself as a teacher. And I would hope to sort of 
open people's eyes, help them be good relatives and be, you know, good community members in a lot of ways. So I would be very happy if that were the case. And then also just sort of participating in everything that's going on right now in the community. And again, language revitalization, you know, would be a huge hope for me to be part of that and to see that 100 years down the road for Dakota language to be thriving is a dream. You know, I've always seen buildings as being contemporary artifact. They're meaning like 100 years from now, they're going to be how we understand the culture of today. So if we aren't doing contemporary things that reflect on history, then we're not advancing the dialogue. So I do think there may be an issue in 100 years where dialogues might be either invented or ignored because we're not, I don't know that we're advancing things as fast as we should, especially in the architectural world, like buildings themselves should be pushing forward. And so for me too, when we think about, for instance, like what elders say and what they do, one of my influences also was my grandmother's like huge influence on me. She was a huge influence on me because she was the thing that connected me to the culture very directly and in ways that you can't even, I can't even articulate. She understood me in a way that I didn't even know until, you know, much later. So I'm making contemporary artifacts, then I need to be advancing the dialogue enough that we can reflect on what is it to be indigenous in the 21st century. And so in the 22nd century, when you're looking back at those things, you know what that is. And it's not replicating the things that were done in 19th, 18th, 17th, down 14th, zero. You know, we're not replicating that stuff. What we are doing is we're taking that worldview and retranslating it, but we're translating it in a contemporary way. So I would hope that the work that I'm producing gets regarded as that, that it is contemporary at the same time looking, trying to look forward, which becomes difficult and challenging, but I would hope that in 100 years, the Indian Community Schools intended to be a 100-year building. They asked for a 100-year building, and I believe that we gave them a 100-year building. So 100 years from now, I would hope that that is the standard of indigenous architecture, right? That's what would be part of the canon of indigenous architecture. So like when someone's studying U.S. history 100 years from now, your building's going to be this thing that they center their argument around of what was life like in this time period. I just wanted to talk a little bit more about the Indian Community School because I got the chance to visit it when I visited Marquette on the job market, and it was really amazing to me. So I grew up in public schools, and uh, you know I saw these little native kindergartners coming, you know, from whatever it was, the Turtle Room or something like that, and I just thought how amazing it would be to be a student in this school that was built with such intention and philosophy behind it. And one of my favorite parts was as you're walking along the hallway you look up and there are sort of these crisscrossing metal inlays on the ceiling and I was told that they are the flight patterns of birds and insects in the area so if you just want to talk a little bit about you know maybe even just that piece of it or that that sort of bringing that idea of these flight patterns and recognizing them in that space in the school, sort of what the intention is behind that and and how that works. So for me, it was a kind of mapping that wasn't about taking something and making a didactic sort of display. Is that but more, right? What I was trying to do is to really help people understand that there are things that are bigger in the world that we're connected to. 
And architecture can be the lens through which to see that. Um, and so when a thing like that, there are a lot of those kinds of things in the building, but when a thing like that stands for that, then it meant to help you reflect on it. I learned things about the world when you make buildings. I think it's one of the things that like in architecture school, we can't really help students understand. And so one of the responsibilities as the designers of the building, Antoine Predock and I would inspect the construction of it so that we could see that things were being done to the standards that they should be done. When those structural pieces were put in, there wasn't a roof on it yet. I have a photo of uh, geese flying along the axis, right? And so for me, that was like, okay, this validates my research. This marks and helps connect me to that non-human world and connects the building to the non-human world. It puts it in, like as you described the circle, like it puts it in the circle, the building in the circle. I think too much of building, we can make the building as being the center of the thing then we're supposed to walk around it and we don't really understand it that was one of those things that helped me like connect it to nature i mean helped sort of validate that as that connection so it was a way of thinking about the building it, one of those other things that i'll just mention if anyone goes to the school you see these huge tree columns and the trees were harvested from the menominee nation and they're white pines uh, some of them were over 300 years old so they hold stories they hold pre-european contact stories and those stories are being told every day in the school. And so that's how we regard them as these kind of like story keepers within that environment. So that's another way of connecting the thing to this non-human world that we know and understand that those trees, they're no longer living. They gave their lives to the school and they're there to kind of protect those stories. And perhaps they're even taking on new stories. The students that are there and going to school, learning the language, living in the 21st century, like those are also stories that are a part of its life now. Other thing I wanted to talk about is how I think about materials for building. And I find my cues from nature, meaning when I teach architecture students about materials, I always use natural analogies, meaning mostly animal. So the coloration of the deer, the coloration of a rabbit, the differences between which animals are predators and which are prey their coats, how they have to blend into the world are all part of that. And so we should be thinking about buildings in that way, right? Like a rabbit's underside is white, so it reflects the ground so that the predator can't see it. If it was the same color, it would just be a darker version and you'd be able to see it and find it. So that's part of the lessons that I teach in the sort of materials of it. So I start to take, what I'm trying to do is to take the materials and put it into that sort of non-human existence. And so when I ask students about materials, so that especially architecture students, let's talk about the characteristics, the qualities of the material you want. Is it shiny? Is it warm? Is it cold? Is it soft? Is it hard? Those kinds of things instead of is it concrete? Is it brick? Is it steel? And those, the way that you see those things is kind of limited in that way. And when I put the copper mesh onto the installations, that's where I'm making this kind of clothing for this animal, how it is going to blend into its environment and how it sort of reflects that. And in the trickster, I'm not trying to associate it with either being a predator or prey. I think that as an entity can be both. It's both of those things. It's all of those things. And so that's, again, where that sort of ambiguity in an intentional way is embedded in the materials. So for me, it's that taking that material language, understanding, consciousness, and putting it into architecture that I think we should be doing, right? Instead of like catalog, shopping, this is the material I want in my building, that kind of thing is too easy to do that.
I wonder what you as an architect would say about whether people need to notice those elements for it to impact their daily life. So for instance, specifically with the space you're talking about at the Indian Community School, I'm sure that the students know the story of that. But as in your kind of practice and the way you conceptualize what you do, is that something that can impact someone even when they don't have that background or that story? I think that the answer is yes. And here's where the difference is, right? This is the difference between, for me, architecture with a small A and architecture with a capital A, is I unapologetically want to make beautiful things. Unapologetically. I just want to make a beautiful thing. So if people understand it as a beautiful thing, that's great. If they understand the cultural significance of it, even better. And if it can have lasting resonance with the inhabitants, that's perfect. Like if I can reach that level of perfection, that's then I've done my job. I don't know that all architects think in that way. I mean, really, I mean, I don't know what the exact figures are, but most of the building that goes on in the world, like. 2% of it is done by architects. An even smaller percentage are star architects, what what I would call the capital A architecture, right? Like if I can aspire to be in that world, that's what I'm trying to kind of do. But I tell my students this too, like making a beautiful thing is not enough, but it certainly is something you should aspire to. A well-crafted, beautiful thing, right? Even in the installation work, the fasteners, I don't want to see them because I don't want them to distract from the thing. So that that's carefully selected. In the Indian Community School in the building, same thing. What What's holding the wood structure together was really an important thing to us as designers, and you can't see them. You don't notice the sprinkler heads. You don't notice the fire alarms. You don't notice all of those things, but they're all in the building. And if you think about them, you can camouflage them. So a question as we're wrapping this up. At the beginning of this podcast, we started with a land acknowledgement where we talked both about the history of this land and about the ongoing presence of indigenous peoples in this land. So we started this episode with a land acknowledgement. And my question is, you know, why is that important? It's important to start with the land acknowledgement and the language. For me, it's establishing who I am really and where I come from. I think it's I know it's intended to frame the conversation that you are about to have or event or whatever it is. If it's a piece of art, if it's some sort of other event, it's intended to frame that in that regard, right? So in in my culture, the Haudenosaunee or Oneida, we talk about being of a good mind, like being of a good heart. Like that is how you start and establish that. So even for me as as a Native person, when I'm speaking the language, I'm thinking about my grandmother, right? I'm thinking about those things. And that helps me sort of frame my own mind in, in how I'm about to present myself to the world and the work. So the land acknowledgement is the place that you start, right? That's always kind of the place that we start. The practice of land acknowledgements has become really important, and it's an important start as we start thinking about and acknowledging Indigenous peoples that have always occupied their homelands, have had different trajectories of movement and removal in those histories, but also presence in space. And so these acknowledgements are important, also important for what we look forward to in the future as far as redress. But one of the things that's important about the the land acknowledgement in our conversation is we're talking about materiality, embodiment in space, and even though you might be listening to this wherever you're at, we want you to know where we are bodied in place in this moment and talking about materials that come from particular places. 
for me, the work is the land acknowledgement. To me, the piece in the Haggerty is a land acknowledgement of acknowledging that you are on indigenous land. I'm happy that the piece is, was in the Haggerty, and the Haggerty has an established and sort of growing agenda to bring that into the world, meaning that indigenous artists are important and what they're saying about contemporary society, you know, whether it's a painter, it's a filmmaker, it's an architect, all of those things are important to them as an institution. That's where the land acknowledgement resonates, right? Meaning like it's not just the statement and acknowledging that. It's about like how do creative material practices get put into the world and understood for indigenous people? Because we're always trying to reconcile that, right? We're always trying to reconcile our culture with the contemporary world. And that's always what we're wrestling with as creative people. So that's really kind of important. So for me, all of the installations I've done, and I've only been doing this for two years. It feels a lot longer. But the first one I did was in Columbus, Indiana for the Miller Prize. And that was a land acknowledgement of that land where that indigenous presence was erased very quickly. And so that is intended to draw people in to ask that question, who was indigenous? to this land. I mean, that's a primary question that people should be asking themselves about wherever they are. Because anywhere you are in the U.S. and Canada, you are on indigenous land. So who is indigenous to that land and, and how did they exist and what happened to them, right? That's even more important, I think, thing that we need to reflect on as a sort of collective. Mm-hmm.